Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And um, a couple of things coming up you should know about. One is there's a reception afterwards over at the Long Now Museum and Shop, half a block that way. Um, the next speaker, Linad Zarius, is actually Daniel Suarez for dyslexics. He wrote a novel which you can get outside called Daemon, or Demon, uh, being the computer technical term for a certain kind of quasi-AI bot. My wife is reading the book right now, and uh, it's defeating sleep for her. It's an incredibly well-written book. And um, he's going to come and do something for the first time, which is talk about the ideas behind that book and the sequel, which is coming, called Freedom, TM, trademark. September 9th, Neil Stevenson's new book, Anathem, uh, will be world-launched from here with Long Now. And that's partly because he got the idea for the book from the clock to Long Now. And uh, there will be live music. It's a sort of a mon monastic order that goes with the 10,000 millennium clock. And they do a certain kind of singing, which is highly mathematical. And there's uh, some singers who have developed that sort of music, and they're going to perform it live. Uh, Neil will read from the book, and uh, Danny Hillis and Neil will talk about the book and everything else. That'll be September 9th. We're not sure where yet. We want to have it somewhere echoey so the music uh, reverberates the way it should. September 9th is a Tuesday night. The clock, Danny Hillis's 10,000, Alexander Rose's 10,000 year clock is a work of art. It's a land, piece of land art in a way, a piece of conceptual art in a way, and a piece of engineering, uh, more importantly. And art is about art. So the sign that you've got some art that's up to something is when it uh, makes other artists do things they might not otherwise have done. So Neil, Neil Stevenson's book is one of those. And what we'll see tonight is another, the great photographer, Edward Bertinsky. Thank you, Stuart. Um, it's really exciting to be here in San Francisco again. I always enjoy coming to San Francisco. Um, and I really thought about how I ended up doing this talk, and, and it came as a result of two dinners. Uh, one dinner with Danny Hillis about a year ago, and he was telling me more about the 10,000-year clock and uh, the idea of it, the inception of it, what, what the um, intention of it is, and how it's supposed to function out there, which I was all ears. And out of that conversation, I said, you know, the, that this really reminds me of some other things that I've heard about, uh, James Turrell's Roden Crater, um, you know, the lightning fields of Walter de Maria, other types of land art um, pieces out there that kind of encourage a pilgrimage to it for those who, who are really interested in the arts or interested in conceptual ideas or interested in land art or interested in, in, in concepts that, that, that this kind of um, uh, place that has something very special going on I think uh, captures our imagination today when we're inundated 
with homogeneity and and uh, you know and that everything is becoming more and more the same. The things we buy, the things we drive, the things we live in. So um, and also how we think about things. Like this particular project captured my imagination because at first I thought. Now, in, in the day and age where we're all talking about global warming and trying to figure out how to make it through the next 50, 100 years, uh, it doesn't seem to be a little odd to be talking about a clock that can run by itself for 10,000 years. And it, I just thought, you know, is this really where we should be paying, our, paying attention right now when, when, you, know, when uh, you know, we've got the, you know, a fire in the kitchen and, and we're trying to think about, you know, how to design our next... Uh, you know, living room out on the edge of, of, of our house. And I thought, this is kind of an odd place to be right now, especially for thinkers, you know, like Danny and, and um, Alexander and, and, and along now. And then I started to hear more about, well, why? What is it that, that makes this a compelling idea for our time? And, and I think, again, it's, it's what, what it is that the foundation has come to, is that we have, I was just reading the press release that Brian Eno had, uh, had done when he talked about doing the chimes. By the way, the, the, the music you're hearing were the experimental chimes that, that would be part of the clock uh, when you were coming in. But he was saying, we've come to a point, both our politicians, our corporate leaders, everybody is thinking in very short terms, the next quarter, the next election, the next next, but it's not, it's not to any distant future. We're not thinking even 10, 20, 30 years out. We're just thinking just ahead of where we are right now, which is a kind of thinking that gets us into serious trouble, as, as we all, uh, I think, can appreciate that, that there are definite issues with that, that kind of short-term thinking. And <clears throat> so when, when I was talking to Donnie, Danny at this dinner, I said, well, I like the idea that you begin to start to shape the way you think because everything then, all your materials, all the way you're thinking is about this future. It's not only very optimistic, it's, it's also um, very creative in that, well, how do we begin to make something of enduring quality? And that making of something of enduring quality uh, forces us out of short-term thinking. And, uh, and it's as simple, really, as that. So when I heard this, I said, well, Danny, you know, I think it would be really interesting if somebody's going to make a pilgrimage to, to see this clock in this mountain, in this chamber in this mountain, wouldn't it be interesting to uh, do something more, to give that person who made the pilgrimage a little bit more to, to, to digest when they get there? Why not do a gallery of, uh, of images uh, within the... Um, within the chamber of the clock. And he kind of turned to me and said, you know, of all the ideas, and I get lots of ideas of what to do along with the clock, I really like this idea. And I'm sorry Danny wanted to be here tonight, but he's extremely busy right now, and he's promised to look at the video, so I expect you to look at the video, so, <laughs> Danny. So anyways, um, yeah, so he, he really uh, thought that this was a beautiful coming together of ideas, that he liked it, and he said, I'd like you to think more about that and find out more about that. So I started researching, and, um, and so that was the first dinner that got me to stand here tonight. The second one was with Stuart about five months ago or six months ago in, uh, here in San Francisco, and it was after an exhibition of mine on quarries. We were having a dinner, and Stuart turned to me, and, said, and we were talking about this, and he said, 
I think you should talk about this at, 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 one of, um, at one of our talks. And I went, gee, I never thought of doing a talk on it, but sure, I'll, I'll certainly try uh, to put these thoughts together and present them to, to the audience here. So this is the first time I'm presenting this idea. Uh, it's been a, an interesting journey uh, in that I didn't know where I was going to end up. I just started to pull away at tug at ideas, and, and I'll, I'll talk about them as I go through it. But the gallery of the 10,000-year clock, this is a quick little proposal that I put forward. This is a proposal to create a gallery of permanent images to be exhibited in the chamber of the 10,000-year clock. This clock will have the ambition and capacity to keep accurate time without human intervention for a period of 10,000 years. The clock would be installed in a chamber within a mountain and be powered by the cycles of day and night. The gallery will display 20-plus images curated by a variety of current thinkers and image specialists who will be asked to select a group of images that would reflect the impulse of the cave painters of Lascaux that could loosely be defined by this quote from Wenzel van Huysen, who is an expert in, in the caves. The paintings are the oldest symbols of human imagination, and they certainly had some religious and mythological meaning. They tell us about who our direct ancestors were, what they thought, and what they could do. They tell us about imagination, about creativity, about consciousness, and about the creator. The clock and the mountain that contains it will enter into the realm of destinations worthy of pilgrimage to witness and experience. Those who make that effort would be rewarded not only with the marvel of the clock, but also a contemporary update to the impulses of the cave painters of Lascaux, an exhibition of images that the curators believe represent the creative expressions, values, desires, and concerns of our current culture. The images that are selected will not necessarily be a complete compendium of our value system, thus reading like a time capsule for future generations. Rather, it will reflect contemporary manifestations of our individual and collective will. I can imagine it exhibitions along the following lines. Our built world, using nature, science and technology, objects of desire, notions of beauty, mobility, energy, freedom, and the middle class, conflict, Darwin versus God, pursuit of outer space and the cosmos, and so on. And unlike the painters of Lascaux, who were not painting for the enlightenment of future generations, but for their benefits and values, we today live with extended consciousness and cannot help but consider what might be interesting to leave behind as symbolic representation of who we are and what we aspire to. So that, that's kind of the, the working parameter of what I, um, I was beginning to think about in, in doing the clock. And so the clock itself, I don't know how many, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. This is the first prototype, and, um, and it exists in the uh, Science Museum and, um, in, 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 in London. And um, I think it's, is that correct? It's in London? Yeah. So it's in the Science Museum. Um, and this is a, obviously a pared-down version. And what's interesting about this clock is, is uh, again, the materials that are being used, how it's being conceived, uh, it, it, to keep accurate time over a period of 10,000 years without human intervention is, is a really fascinating, I think, uh, scientific uh, uh, problem in physics and materials. And, um, and, and I think it's, you know, uh, um, again, something of, um, of, of an incredible curiosity that, that something can kind of, again, drive itself over that period of time. And I thought, I kept asking Danny, well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be like a windmill or a solar? And he said, no, no, none of that stuff is more than 50, 100 years. And we're talking, so 
basically the uh, the premise here is that they're going to have um, some type of uh, of, of, of uh, wires that, that expand and contract at a high rate outside that can capture the energy of expansion contraction through the sun and, and, and through, through, through the cold of the night and the, and the heat of the day. Uh, also, there's going to be a, a slot within the mountain that at the zenith would be able to set um, the time so it can recalibrate itself on a daily basis. So th this is uh, something that is meant to be kept, keep very accurate time um, over a, a long period of time. The mountain itself, uh, Mount Washington, um, is, is, is currently you know, the, the mountain of choice. It's up and one can go to this mountain today and, and uh, I think that if I'm not mistaken that somewhere along up into this area a slot will be cut where the zenith of the sun can be picked up and, and it can recalibrate itself from that. <clears throat> Some other shots of the mountain. So this mountain is also in, now in possession, I think, of, of uh, or, or available to be developed into a chamber and has the, the conditions of, of um, you know, that, that, it, that the rock is solid enough, uh, that it's impermeable, that it can withstand uh, a fair amount of, uh, of jostling should an earthquake occur and still maintain its structure. Um, all these conditions of what the chamber, how the chamber can be built to withstand, because chambers change over time too, and the, and so all these types of uh, all this type of thinking is being brought to creation, the creation of the chamber within this mountain. Now the chamber itself, there is no current design, but Danny was not nice enough to send me a whole bunch of things that he found interesting. Uh, as chambers, as, as underground structures. This is uh, the, the Russian subway system being de de uh, constructed. Uh, this is um, the salt chambers outside of Warsaw that, uh, that were um, these large ca carved chambers uh, uh, with sculptures are, are, are uh, there for the public viewing. Uh, this is in uh, France, it's a, a, a cathedral uh, in France. These are the sewers in, in, in Japan. I don't know if any of you have seen them. They're pretty wild. Um, and this is more of an organic type of chamber entering down into, in, into a cave. I think this is in France as well. So <clears throat> the Gallery 10,000. So the Caves of Lascaux, in a way, these, these are some of the earliest paintings. They, some of them date back 20, 30,000 years. Beautifully drawn. And uh, this is one of the few figures that appears, and it's actually a, a figure of um, a fallen uh, hunter. But it, it, most of them are just animals and spears, and, uh, but, but here's one of the few, few figures. Again, probably representing the greatest consequence of the hunter is to lose a battle to, to, to the animal and, and to, to give up their life uh, in, in pursuit of, 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 of the hunt. And, um, and again, there I find I've not had a chance to to ever see them, but but they are the uh, the impulse of these of, of the painters again was not to 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 send messages to us, but to again lay down what their system of thinking, what was important to them during during their their lives, and and um, and again I, I wanted to keep to that idea that I don't want necessarily a time capsule with the images, but, but to try to call out the kinds of things that really truly uh, represent our culture. And then the, the big question was, well, I'm a photographer, 
And why not go back to these types of paintings? Why, why photography? And uh, so for a long time, I kept thinking, can I make a case for photography being the, 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 the medium of choice to, to have exhibitions of, of the photographic process? Some of you may be familiar with this Nisa Photonips' photo, first photograph. So this is the first fixed image ever um, that, was, uh, that still exists today. Um, in in uh, 18, I think 38 was the, the, the date that this was formed, very primitively. Uh, it took a whole day to expose it. But from this image, all images have cascaded forward. I mean, before that was a camera obscura where they could still see the image on the back of the ground glass for almost 200 years. No one knew how to fix it. And finally, uh, um, th there was a way to capture it. Again, primitive, but all of a sudden it says, yes, it can be done. And it's from the capturing of this image that all future images came out of. So if we think of you know, the still, motion picture, video, multimedia, all of that uh, starts with this very simple primitive image. And what I started to think about is, well, it's a direct outcome. The photographic image is a direct outcome of the Industrial Revolution. It's really part of the process, part of the handling of chemicals and materials and plastics and, and, and dichromates and, and, and uh, uh, light-sensitive uh, you know, materials, understanding cameras and optics and lenses and all of that are all really uh, a direct uh, um, result. And that photography coming into being, we shape it as human beings. We create the images and find ways to refine them but at the same time, those images are shaping us in a powerful way. And I think if, uh, if I look back at the last 150 years of photography, it has told us more about ourselves than any previous histories in painting or anything, that all of a sudden the photograph was a ubiquitous form. It wasn't too expensive to make. It wasn't just the enclave of the bourgeois and the church and the state. Uh, now all of a sudden everyone, everyone had a chance to make images or be a, an image through a portrait. And, um, and it changed the way we saw ourselves, it changed the way we began to understand the world around us, and it began to bridge many of the um, things that we couldn't understand or didn't see because they were outside of our consciousness. So the photograph, so if there was a war, the Boer War, or, or any, all of a sudden these images, the Vietnam War, all of a sudden these images started to come back to us, and we began to learn from these images what these consequences were, what that other world that's going on out there that we hear about but don't see. And when we see, I think because uh, photography is part of everyone's life now, I think if I was to say to everybody in this room, when you think of yourself uh, and, and growing up, what what kinds of things come to mind? And I bet you many of the thing images of the, your past homes and your bedroom when you were five and your, the bike you rode and the clothes you wore when you were young are all probably attached to early images that we have memories of that time, but a picture of you at five, when you look back at it when you're 50, will tell you more and key you right back into that place like nothing else will. And our histories, our personal histories are linked to photography, as is our larger collective social histories linked to photography. And that it's through that medium that I believe we interpret our world and sh again, shape our world as, as photography shapes us. And that was really the, the, the reason why I felt that this indexical relationship that photography is this imprint of the world, 
Um, and that this print represents that imprint uh, that, uh, again, uh, made the justification for wanting to use that as the key medium within the 10,000-year cave. <clears throat> so then I thought, well, carbon transfer print, that brings me to, well, if I was going to do a photographic print, what print would I do? And, um, and at first I thought, well, I want to do something that is reasonably, you know, practical and that I can actually have some confidence that it will be there in a cave. Now, I'm assuming a cave is going to be in dark storage for long periods of time. I'm also making an assumption that cabinets can be built and when the exhibition is brought down, it can be pushed into cabinets that are fairly well sealed from humidity as well as the cave and the clock needs to have a fairly stable temperature and humidity as well. So I'm assuming the conditions for the clock are also going to be fairly ideal conditions for a print. Um, and, 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 I, and I talked to Danny, and he said that's a fair assumption to make. So then I said, okay, well, based on that assumption, what is the most permanent process I could find? And, I, and, and that's practical, and I thought, well, inkjet. We all know what inkjets are. Uh, we all know that there's a lot of development in that, in that field. And I started to think, well, if there were an inkjet printer that had pure, very good CMYK ink, cyan, magenta, yellow, black, and if it could jet these pigments onto a material that doesn't corrode, a paper or a mylar or something that I felt had a 10,000-year stability to it, then bingo, I've got it, and then I just have to find that. But in my search, of inkjet printers that could jet the same inks that, that would be used to paint a car. So I was saying, a car, if we think of a car out there in the sun every day, getting blasted by the sun and not changing color very much, whatever is in those pigments should withstand uh, you know, centuries and millennia of time in a fairly quality controlled or, or humidity controlled cave. The thing I could not find was any process that had evolved the kinds of uh, technology that would spray on uh, the paint onto cars onto a perfect CMYK printing process. And even if it were there, there were kind of noises that somebody was close to it. Uh, I didn't feel at this point in time that you know, with all the other types of materials that would have to be brought in to bring those pigments to a point that could be jettable, uh, and the breaking down of those pigments, that there was anything that I would have in the next five to 10 years that could give me any assurance, like a Henry Wilhelm test, any assurance that this has a go forward um, stability. So that was my first pursuit, and it kind of ended in no, I don't think I've got an answer here. So I continued to, to pull away at things, and I did looked at the dye transfer process, which no longer is possible because Kodak dropped the dye transfer process and they made all the matrices for it. And so that, in the late 80s, early 90s, was a process that was no longer there. So then I went further and actually went back to a process that was developed in around 1855, and it's called the, the carbon... Uh, the, the carbon transfer process. And I'm going to read you a bit about it. 
the history of it. The carbon transfer process is considered by most persons who know it to be one of the most beautiful of all photographic processes. Carbon prints are capable of a wide range of image characteristics that can be virtually any color or tone, and the final image can be placed on a wide variety of surfaces, including glass, metal, paper, as well as various kinds of synthetic surfaces. When the final support has a smooth surface carbon, uh, sorry, when the final support has a smooth uh, uh, relief that gives them a real dimensional quality, especially prominent when the photograph is held sideways to the light. Carbon is without question the most distinctive and stable of all photographic processes, with the capability of presenting images with a wide range of image characteristics of virtually any color or tone on a wide variety of surfaces. Finally, carbon transfer prints, which are made up of inner pigments suspended in a hardened gelatin colloid, are the most stable of all photographic prints. So what you're looking he at here is a carbon transfer print. And uh, what I'd like to show you quickly is, is basically, I have to jump out of my program to show this to you because this is on the web. Um, so this is basically what's happening. You create, at that size of that image, you create a negative digitally. So what's, that used to be done filmically by, by separating uh, a color slide or whatever through an RGB and making negs. Nowadays, you digitize the transparency or the negative, and then you convert it into four black and white, high contrast lithographic negatives through a digital process. And, uh, and that's what you're seeing in the tray here, or, or on the light table, is a digitized black and white negative once you, you have the negatives made, uh, you then move to, and I have samples of it there, that's actually the carbon um, and pigments. So these are, I brought some as well. These are the pigments. So you have your cyan blue. Now this is, these all come from quarries. This is stone ground up into very, very fine, fine uh, powder and then suspended in an emulsion. So that's your cyan your yellow, and your magenta. So those are, the, and then you also have a black, but those are the key colors. Black is very ubiquitous. It's not, it's not hard to find black carbon, but those colors come from specific mines that have stone of that color that are ground up, and there's nothing else in them, and then they're just suspended. Uh, and once the, 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 the stone is suspended, they're turned into these types of sheets. These are light-sensitive sheets. So. So that is then, then the, that's a mixture of sugar um, that, that the, the, um, uh, the pigment is, is suspended in, uh, and uh, dichromats, and also, which, which is the light sensitive aspect of it, and also there's uh, a gelatin. That, and then it's mixed to a certain viscosity and then rolled out onto this paper. Once it's rolled out onto the paper, um, you expose it. So this is a typical exposing device. So it's a very high intensity light. So you're exposing through the negative to the material, which once any light that comes through hardens that color. Uh, and once that color is hardened, it can then be washed out. So you've now got it. And now what, you do, what you're going to do here is you wash out all of the uh, material that hasn't been exposed to light and it washes away. And what you're left with is, is um, the, 
material. So these are the four layers being, being shown. So this is a, the, how it's being built up. Each layer is pulled and transferred, and what's happening is that you're using this here, which is gelatin, and this gelatin has been around, uh, which is basically uh, marrow from the, uh, from, the cow, the, from the bones of the cow, and so the gelatin is, it's a pure gelatin. It doesn't yellow. It doesn't crackle. It's been around for 1,500 years, uh, and this is what allows um, the different layers to adhere to each other, and then once you have all these layers ad adhering to each other, then you can take all of them together and transfer them onto a watercolor paper. The watercolor papers, there's really two sources of watercolor papers that are, uh, that are known to be able to withstand the test of time. They're about 300 grams, some of the thickest papers you can, you can uh, um, find out there, built extremely well. Um, and you know, papers that Van Gogh was using, these, the Fabriano and Arches are the two key, one's Italian, Fabriano, Arches is French. These are the two key suppliers of paper. When I looked at possibly doing this, one can transfer this onto porcelain, which seems like a much more stable material. One of the issues is porcelain that I voted porcelain down on, and it would be a beautiful print, but one of the reasons was, one, human intervention, somebody could drop the porcelain and it would, it would disappear, it would be shattered into uh, uh, many, many pieces. The second concern about porcelain was that um, if there were a lot of temperature variation over time, that the gelatin silver may be tested. In other words, the, the layer, the emulsion layer, may be tested against that layer it's on if the expansion and contraction is much higher than the image is and you can start breaking the, the bonds between the, 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 the image and the material that it's holding it together. Whereas when you get this gelatin against this paper, the bonds go very, very deep into the structure of the paper. Therefore, if you have temperature variations, the chances of a, of a failure of the image where it begins to let go and curl up or break away from the paper uh, is reduced to nil. Uh, it's almost impossible then to separate the, the, the image from the paper. So as long as nothing happens to the paper, that the containment that the paper sits in after the exhibition is in a watertight, pretty airtight, uh, dark chamber, I can't imagine that if you open that, that up uh, regularly and then, but any, any time, you can open it up all the time under dim light and never see a change. I, I would think as long as water never got in there and damaged the paper, that these would indeed still be there 10,000 years from now on this paper and on, on this, with this pigment. Uh, there... <laughs> There is the chance as well that um, something in 10 years, five to 10 years may come about, some kind of inkjetting process that, um, that may all of a sudden have a breakthrough. And um, that I think uh, would be uh, an exciting moment. Right now, just to give you an idea, this is one of the largest sizes they can go without a lot of failure. They, they can, there, there's really about three places in the world that can do this. One's in Cornwall in the UK, uh, one's in Seattle, and one's in Toronto. I've been dealing with both the Seattle and the Toronto. I also went to see uh, the, the gentleman doing, uh, Gerard doing him in, 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 in the UK. But uh, the one 
the one that's most promising uh, is, is Todd, who's doing them in Seattle. Um, and that's the, the website you're seeing is, uh, is Art and Soul. That's his, his site where he does, does these prints. You can do them that size. The, pr the price for one of them at that size is about $2,000. Uh, 3040s, if he's up to doing them, uh, and it's very difficult to do them. There, there wouldn't be full 3040, it'd be 3040 watercolor paper. Um, they, I think the price would jump to about four or 5,000 per print. So it's very, very labor intensive. It takes about five days from beginning to end of process to get one color image in the carbon. So it's very artisan, very hands-on, very, very few. There's a handful, I think there's maybe less than a, 10 people probably on the planet today that can make that print. So, um, so it is, uh, again, something that uh, if the 10,000-year gallery were to become a real thing, there may be a, a chance to revive a craft, I think, for this to find a way to, to, to capture the materials for a long period of time until some other permanent process comes into play. Um, so that's, and if anybody wants to come up later and just look at the print or feel them in those, uh, the different uh, colors, uh, you're welcome to, to, to play with that. Um, so what I did to keep it interesting is I said, okay, well, um, I wouldn't want to curate every show. I think that would be a huge burden, and I don't think that would be very interesting. So I asked a couple of my colleagues nearby who, who would do it without charging me, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I said, would you, uh, would you just put together uh, some, an idea? If I said, here's the chamber, you've curated, you're a professional curator, you've created shows, you know, spend a week or so, think about it, put something together, you know, call your own work or what you've done in the past. So Vid, is, Vid Ingelvix is a, is a great uh, friend of mine, um, and he's curated many, many, he's interested in museology, he's interested in very interesting views of how we look at uh, the world. So his working title was called The Museum of the Mundane, and this is what he writes. It is a relatively it is relatively recently that questions around representation, class, gender, and the nature of the everyday have come together to influence the scope of history, whether written or as the subject of museological display. The turn to the everyday past as an object of study has meant an expansion of interest beyond the activities of royalty, the extraordinary to include the prosaic preoccupations of the shoemaker, baker, or office clerk. The greater the temporal distance between ourselves and the past, the more intense popular and professional interest in the mundane seems to become. As one example, the graffiti, often pornographic, found on the walls of ruined Pompeian uh, walls now attract more attention from both tourists and archaeologists as the elegant mosaic floors of the town's wealthy inhabitants. Accordingly, I would propose to work with the elements of the banal, the mundane, and the everyday of our era. There are two possible approaches I am considering for this initial proposal. The first would produce a kind of photographic museum of the mid-century banal, to highlight ordinary commercially available products popular in the mid-20th century as drawn from photography collections found in two major Canadian archives, those of the Library and Archives Canada, National Design Council Archives, and the Archives of Ontario, Eaton's Department Store Archives. E Eaton's is actually one of the largest department stores uh, that uh, went out of business about 10 years ago. 
They've been in Canada for almost 100 years. The accompanying 20 images are drawn from these two sources. Further research at other sites could, of course, be carried out if deemed necessary. The second approach would involve the reproduction in some visual form of the material goods and ambience found in a typical corner convenience store or dollar store. The two sites each have their attractions. The very notion of convenience is itself part of the ethos of our time, with the range of products functioning by default as a kind of unofficial pole of what we feel are the true necessities of life. Cat food, milk, bread, lottery tickets, AA batteries, cigarettes, etc. As for the dollar store, it can be seen as being a repository of simulacra based on the world of commercially derived objects outside its doors. The dollar store shelves are packed with goods that are basically cheap reproductions of existing things, thus engaging with issues of representation, desire, and class in our time. I would propose that for North Americans, it is these kinds of places that unerringly provide the authentic texture of the ordinary life of our time. So what's interesting is, is uh, when I first saw this proposal, I thought, geez, these aren't the most exciting pictures I've ever seen. But they are interesting in that I kept thinking of them as if, if we were doing an archaeological dig of some civilization 10,000 years ago, we'd be digging up their spearheads or arrowheads. We'd be digging up you know, their pots and shards of pots. And, and these were the things that comprised their daily lives. And in many ways, these are the things that, that are part of our daily lives and that archaeologists will be digging up, you know, if they are out there in 10 or 15 or 20,000 years and going to our dump sites, we'll be finding just these kinds of things. Um, and uh, obviously in different uh, states of, 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 of decay. But, um, but I did think it was a, 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 a different way to begin to, uh, again, lay something down for uh, a, you know, a, a museum of the 10,000-year uh, clock that, or the gallery to put something that somehow um, you know, isn't, a, 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 how should we say, a, a celebration of what we do, but it's really more of an archaeological dig of who we are and the kinds of things that we surround ourselves with in our day-to-day -day lives to lead the kind of lives that, that we, we lead. Of course, I don't know if any of you had this hockey game or this is just a Canadian thing or not. I'm not sure. <laughs> These are all the uh, animals in Canada that you could find all turned into little plastic animals. So something that everybody should have. So then I went to another friend of mine, <coughs> and um, uh, Marcus Schubert, and said, "Can you go and um, you know see what you come up with? Just, just again, apply yourself to it." And he he came up with something where he didn't want to use again any of his own imagery because he's a photographer in his own right, but he wanted to go. So he just literally went onto the web. So none of, the, none of this has got any copyright approval. This is all just hypothetical here. Um, so, uh, so he went and collected all this stuff, and, and he, he referred to the project as observations from a blue planet. And he took, a, he took the line, an exhibition of, the, in, in my proposal, an exhibition of images that represent the creative expressions, values, desires, and concerns of our current culture. 
in my proposal, and he, he kind of riffed off of that. And this is what he says. He's presented in the form of diptychs. The photographs in this presentation explore a range of similarities and differences, both within the framework of each pairing and in consort with the other diptychs in the series. All the images are culled from internet sources, then recontextualized by juxtaposition to create discrete meanings that to, meanings to relate to the dynamics of our human condition. These specific selections may be seen as sketches to hint at what could be a more comprehensive investigation. Our world is a cosmic oasis blessed with an atmosphere profoundly rare in the universe, <clears throat> sustaining a vast system of biodiversity that is nothing short of miraculous. However, we live in a world of extremes, extremes of technological development, impoverishment, wealth, extremes of weather, of violence against one another, and of beauty. In a few short centuries, we have ventured forward from the first printed page to telephone networks and now the internet. We evolved from the use of horses as transportations to the pioneering of mechanical flight and scientific deep space exploration to manned land landings upon the moon. Since the discovery and development of fossil fuel as a plentiful and versatile source of energy, civilization has experienced staggering population growth and technological advancement, along with an equally staggering polarization of wealth. I see the Earth and its inhabitants as participants in the unfolding of a great dramatic experiment, an experiment of diversification and consumption. In less than a century, for the first time in recorded history, we have become increasingly aware that our actions directly affect the viability of our existence and that of our fellow creatures. Humankind in this century can now effectively be considered powerful as a force of nature in the scale and consequence of the effects uh, and, and of our actions upon the planet. These images are mere shadows on a cave wall that intimate life as we know it. The question remains, what kind of life is it? Ideally, my vision for an exhibition in the 10,000-year clock gallery would be, a pro to, would be to project 10,000 diptych images in a grid forming a random rolling sequence of images throughout the space. However, if electrical power constraints in such a remote location inhibits the use of computers and projectors, alternative to production and exhibition of a set of archival prints as per specifications set forth by the organizers would become the final form of this presentation. Upon further talking to him, he thought it would be interesting to use the site of the long now to, to bring in these types of diptychs and to have a constant while all of this is, is functional to have a constant um, uh, exhibition of these diptychs uh, as, as part of the project as well. So again, as you can see, he's, uh, he's finding images that, that it, it many of them are within the, the, the have and the have not category, as I said to him. These, these things are also paradise or, or, or the power or the force of, of nature. It's, it's both, both it's, it's tranquil tr uh, and idyllic paradise and it's um, damaging, forceful nature. Um, so these were, these were again, uh, 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 some of his um, ideas uh, that he felt were, were salient and powerful uh, representations through the photographic medium that, 
uh, that, that talk to, to the things that affect our time. This is a, one of the first switchboards, and on the right is an artist's rendering of the uh, World Wide Web. So this brings me around to um, a project I'm calling In the Wake of Progress, which is, uh, uh, I've edited down, I think I've, done, I've got a few more than the 20 plus, but uh, I had a hard time editing. Um, <clears throat> but what I wanted, uh, sorry, what I wanted to uh, show in this work, in my own work, was to, again, look at the survey of my work, but if I had to pick you know, 30 plus images, um, what would I pick and why? And um, as some of you may know, my work has, has um, always been interested in trying to reconnect us to what I call the, the, the great ages of man, the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, and, and now we're in the you know, Industrial Revolution, Technological uh, Information Age. But those earlier ages are still alive and well and functioning on a scale on our planet that I think many of us, uh, I felt, even I was unaware of until I began this project over 25 years ago. And so I really began to think of, well, what's happened? What's changed? I mean, we've always taken from the Earth, but um, something's happened in the last couple hundred years, in particular the last century. Uh, a lot of what I feel has happened is, number one, the discovery of oil, the internal combustion engine, together, this cheap source of fuel, this incredibly powerful tool, the internal combustion engine, uh, has been able to accelerate our abilities to, to expand. And I think like any life force, a life force expands in, into its energy footprint, and when that energy footprint reduces, so does that life force. And I believe we're in this massive century of expansion as a result of that energy, of the discovery of that non-renewable resource called oil. And I think if I go back 100 years where our population was just breaking a billion, and in, in a century, we're now at 6.5 billion. That increase is, is uh, even from in my 50 plus years, I think when I was born, uh, the population was around two, two plus billion and now it's 6.5. So that's almost um, you know, uh, <clears throat> 10 billion a decade, maybe 8 billion a decade. And that's, that kind of growth is, I'm, I'm asking myself, well, how did that happen? Well, if we look at the transportation, if we look at um, fuel and ships and, 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 and uh, trains, uh, cars, uh, farming equipment, all of those things have allowed us uh, the ability to expand at that dramatic rate. So when I went to think about how do I begin to represent this, one of the places I, I thought was, well, the um, Railcut series was one of the first significant series I shot in, 80, in 1983, and it was really the, the opening up of North America that I was thinking about, that Europe was in a, the doldrums, it was, it was moving towards um, North America to replenish its resources. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, America was born of a European plunder, so to speak, if we look at the European North America. And that the rail is a thing that opened up the West, and it opened it up rapidly. This was, you know, this was, you know, put in place about 170 years ago. These are the rails going through the Rocky. But I wasn't photographing it kind of as a heroic way. I was trying to show it 
uh, straight on. As I, I wanted to have us contemplate what that, what that line, that gesture through the landscape meant to the landscape and to us. And so it was more of um, an image that makes us meditate upon that engineered line. And if one looks at the actual, um, you know, the train, it's, it, what it's bearing is a load. What's in the load is the same color as the mountain. So it is this kind of, the mountain kind of pouring into the cars, filling them with the material to be brought back to the east, to be brought back to Europe to, to fuel their, their continued expansion. So to me, this, it was a, a, an interesting way to begin to look at our, that landscape and tell a story about what it means to us and, um, and the significance it has to, to humankind and to nature itself. <clears throat> I then um, include, I'm including, I would include several pictures of mines. And one of the things when I photograph mines, to move from the idea of, of the um, kind of general, that what's the biggest copper mine in the world? What's the biggest iron ore mine in the world? Whatever, how do I go from that to the specific? And, that, and, that, and the bigger is the key word. I went in search of the largest examples of, of mines in the world. So this is in North America. This is the largest copper mine. It's a Kennecott copper mine just outside of Salt Lake City. And what to me was interesting about this picture and why I'd want to include it is that when one looks at it, one really begins to see almost like an inverted pyramid. It's a big amphitheater. But when you begin to look at the scale of it and you see the trains, that these are actual you know, the, 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 this is a train in here and there's a banana bus somewhere in here. So when you actually see the print, you can see these actual um, bits of information as what they are in their size. And then the size begins to, to, to present itself. And what I was thinking is that, well, these are in a way, um, you know, this is the great sublime of our time, that the sublime has been subverted from one that during Turner's period, during the Romantic period, where Man was still dwarfed by nature, the, the Moby Dick story or, or the ship being lost at sea in a Turner painting, that, that this is no longer um, the fearful sublime. We've now built cars and sh planes and ships to, to be able to with, withstand those types of forces. And so this, uh, to me, is, 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 the, is the new sublime, the force of human um, engineering and capacity to be able to capture these materials and convert them and isolate ourselves from uh, the, the, the elements. And in the isolating ourselves from the elements, we have become an element in and of ourselves. So to me, this is one of the ideas that I like to think about when I started to photograph these mines. This in South America is a Chukikamata mine. I just shot this a year ago. And, and uh, again, the, one of the large, this is, I think, the largest mine the, the, the last two argue who's the biggest, but I think uh, there's 25,000 men that work here and they claim that 30% uh, of all copper in the world comes from this one mine. Uh, where I'm standing, the opposite wall of, that, of, the, of this particular mine is five kilometers away. So uh, just to give you a sense of the scale here. Um, and it's only about uh, a third of the way down. There's still two thirds to go. <clears throat> Uh, this is in Australia. I just got back uh, last year again photographing this mine. 
Um, this is a, a place called Mount Whaleback, uh, one of the largest, richest iron ore deposits um, known in the world. It still isn't a big mine, but the deposit itself is, is on a world-class level that, that hasn't, has been rarely found. Um, the iron ore coming out of it is, I mean, actually the darker, just to show you this darker, this is the iron ore here. When you're down in that area, you just pick up a chunk of rock and it just feels like you're picking up a chunk of steel. It's 65% it's iron ore. Um, and it's supplying pretty much 50%. It's a BHP. This is the biggest mine in the world. It's now trying to buy tech. No, it's trying to buy, um, what is that? I'll just think of it in a minute. They're, they're just trying to take over, which would become, you know, by large scale, the largest mine in the world. But, um, but they supply about uh, a major amount of iron ore for China. Korea and Japan. So all of this stuff is being shipped from Northern Australia through Port Hedland into, into uh, those three marketplaces directly from here. And I found this place by photographing the largest steel plant in China and said, where's all your iron ore coming from? And they said, Mount Whaleback in Australia. And then I ended up in Mount Whaleback. So I often trace things back uh, that way as well. I wanted to show that any, any mine has a, as a consequence of mining is the thing called tailings, if you're familiar with the mining process. This is a tailings pond in northern, northern um, Ontario. Um, and so what, what I'm standing on here is about a 70 meter high, uh, 6,000 uh, acre pond. And um, what they do is they flow out the, when, when they take ore out, whether it's copper ore or nickel ore, the actual ore itself is a very small percentage, maybe 5% of, of the ore. That's, uh, the rest of it is just ground up rock and they have to then, through electrolysis or different processes, extract the minerals out and then they flow the rest of the rock out. They can't put it back in the hole they've dug because they're continuing to dig. Those consequential holes are still highly mineralized so that the orange here is actually uh, iron ore that hasn't been used uh, because it's not worth it to take iron ore from this particular ore, um, tailings because you have iron ore mines like the one I just showed you. So they just flow this iron back into the tailings pond because it's not worth capturing. But all the silver, the nickel, the copper has been taken out. So, so these are, this is a consequence of any mining operation is a tailings operation. So you can't have really one without the other. And so a representation of a tailings pond became, I think, an important aspect to show in, 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 my, uh, in my exhibit. Um, I also felt that our built worlds, um, our cities, uh, use dimensional stone versus uh, or, you know, stuff that's converted to, to metals, um, but we use concrete. But stone is also a, a very important component of our buildings. So I went in search of some of the largest uh, dimensional stone quarries in the world. And I ended up doing a lot of work in Vermont. So this is granite coming out of uh, a granite quarry, uh, kind of at its last legs. They're still doing some work in the foreground, but most of this has been abandoned. The reason why they've abandoned it is because um, the fractured stone you, you see doesn't allow for them to pull blocks big enough to be um, viable within the marketplace. So once they can't get viable um, blocks out, then they, um, they leave and go to areas that are, again, less fractured, 
more solid and, 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 and begin to quarry that. So this is an example of a quarry in, in North America. This is in Vermont. Then I also went to um, uh, Carrera. And these these um, quarries were made famous by Michelangelo, uh, where he went to find his marble. But again, it's some of the finest marble in the world um, being quarried here. And um, again, I wanted to show this kind of inverted architecture, the, the, the scale of our taking. And I think that both as an image, the images that make us want to look at these places that draw us to, to, to consider these, uh, these kinds of places. There's also, I feel, <clears throat> a, a great amount of information about how we're extracting these materials that become present in the work as well. And I think that is one of the, 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 the beauties of photography is that it can be, all, uh, you know, it can be a, a fairly aesthetic work of art or, or, or aesthetically seen, uh, seen, but within it is embodied a lot of information that can be drawn out of those photographs by those who spend the time to look at them and to try to understand what is actually going on in these pictures. Uh, this is also a recent, uh, it's a different point of view, but these are several recent pictures I took in Australia. And, and again, that kind of, the, the extraction of industries is almost like a, almost to me like a cavity um, that, uh, that is, um, uh, you know, showing the, the withdrawal of material from, from the surface of the planet. And then this is, to me, again, around the same minds, this is uh, how we're reshaping to, to grab this material it's almost like looking at the inner organisms of ourselves, of, uh, of intestinal kind of uh, uh, tract that, um, again, I felt showed that our body and the human, uh, the human body and the landscape share a, a kind of uh, visual similarity when seen through, through the photographic medium and that, that, the, that the, the surface of the earth is really a skin as well, and how we kind of shape that skin uh, has, has a profound effect on, uh, on the planet. And then I began to think, well, we, at this point in time, where we sit today, the, we, the story can't be complete if we didn't, or if I didn't bring in the, the, the idea of oil. And this is a photograph I took recently in, um, in Canada in northern Alberta, and it's, uh, some of you may have heard, it's called the oil sands. And if you look at this, this is actually one of the most significant deposits of oil in the world. Only uh, this, uh, northern Alberta has the second largest source of oil, known oil on the planet after Saudi Arabia <coughs> uh, from, their uh, from their drilling tests. Basically, the difference here, though, is that this, is, this here is the overburden. So in the back here, we have the, the boreal forest, which is the second largest forest, in, um, unadulterated forest on the planet after the Amazon, and equal in, as a carbon sink almost to the Amazon. Um, these are two, uh, if, if, um, you know, if the Amazon is considered the right lung of the world, the boreal forest is the left lung. So it is a very important tract of forest, and, and then this is, so the forest is being cleared for this area. Uh, this is the overburden, about 20 or 7 meters or 20 feet. And then here is, the, is where the oil is coming from. This is the oil sands. And this is about 
60 to 70 feet deep. Um, and uh, it, the area that can be mined this way is close to the size of Florida. Um, and uh, what's happening is that here's a truck carrying uh, this. 12% of that is bitumen that can be converted into oil. And the rest of it is sand. So what we have happening here is um, that companies from all around the world are now buying leases in northern Alberta to extract um, this particular um, fairly dirty oil. I think uh, Al Gore uh, spoke about the oil sands at the last TED conference. <clears throat> I thought what he said was quite interesting. He said, if, if we look at our human addiction to oil as a junkie addicted to heroin, going for the oil sands is like shooting up between our toes. Um, so um, <laughs> I thought I kind of said it clearly. Um, so anyways, what's happening is, uh, and what a lot of people don't understand, in fact, recently what's spurred our government, the Alberta government, just to throw $2 billion at it is California. Thank you, California. Um, the California was saying, we're not going to accept this oil. It's got too much of a carbon footprint for our liking to accept it. Uh, so uh, they're now trying to find ways to sequester the carbon. But, um, but what's happening is that to get this oil out, they have to create vast amounts of steam. And um, so basically for whatever the CO2 footprint for a barrel of oil, conventionally like Saudi Arabia oil, this is about four times more uh, CO2 footprint to get this oil out. So we're burning natural gas to create a dirty oil, which is a fairly clean burning fossil fuel for a very dirty burning fossil fuel. And so there's a lot of discussion about sequestering this. And, um, and I think it's high time that there's this discussion were to happen. And I was very uh, encouraged that California actually stood up and, and said uh, we have problems with the CO2 footprint. And the fact of the matter is if every lease that's out there right now, they've sold off during the last uh, government, in, uh, provincial government in, in Alberta, they sold off so many leases and each lease needs a steam plant. If they built every steam plant that's on the books right now, uh, there's 30 million Canadians. If we all went to zero footprint, in other words, we were all able to uh, go to a zero carbon footprint and all the 30 projects came on stream, Canada would still be out of compliance for the Kyoto Accord. So that being said, I know we're not going to go to zero footprint. If this goes ahead, I figure Canada will have the dirtiest CO2 footprint on the planet. So I, I'm kind of a little upset about that myself. Um, so that is one of the key things that there's tons. Like it's created the, the largest surface engineering project on the planet, uh, the largest toxic lakes in Canada and possibly on the planet as well. And it's the, the, the size of the forest being aff affected is unprecedented, and they've only touched 1%. So there's 99% that they still know of, and they haven't explored the whole region. This is another uh, massive oil field. This is the one um, uh, where, if you've seen the movie, there will be blood, but this is around Bakersfield. This is the current, around the current oil fields. These are the first oil fields that had been discovered and the beginning of the big oil boom in California. And um, so again, this, is, this oil field 
is still alive and well, still producing over a billion barrels of oil per year. Um, and um, so, it, it, but it's doing, th doing it through jack pumps. So the first um, kind of half of a, a well's life is, is under pressure. So they just turn on the tap when they need it and we don't need it, turn it down a bit. Uh, but then the pressure runs out and there's still half the oil down there. So that's when they begin to pump it. And then now what they're doing is they're doing a similar thing that's happening in Alberta. They're pumping steam down into the, the, the um, area where the oil is and the steam is creating a more viscous flow of that oil and that oil is coming up. So in a way that landscape of oil uh, and what brought this dirty century into being is, is, is oil. And I felt again that, that um, it was very important to, to begin to show where these key sources uh, of oil were coming from. This is uh, in Azerbaijan on the Caspian Sea. Uh, many of you probably didn't know because I didn't know until I got there myself that it's, it's there that the um, offshore oil platform was invented by a Polish engineer because the fishermen about 30 kilometers off of the shore of Baku know, knew this place as oily rocks and that there was always a skim of oil on the surface of the water. So they knew that there was oil on the land in Baku. So they figured there must be oil seeping out of the rocks out on the, out on the Caspian Sea. How do we get it? They brought in a Polish engineer who figured out how to do an offshore platform. It was about 20 meters deep. So these are all 20 meter kind of stilts. They would take this barge out onto sea, drop the stilts, build a platform on top, start to drill. Uh, so it was a fairly easy drill, but it was really a, the, the, the beginning of offshore oil. And then the Baku, uh, where I went uh, onto shore, all of that oil field had been exhausted and exploited, and it was a, a dead zone, a totally dead zone. The, the water, the reflection you're looking at here is a pool of oil. So when the Russians left this area 20 years ago, because it was largely uh, this oil field propelled the Ru Russia through the Second World War and even through the First World, World War, it was a key resource for, and it was light sweet crude as well, which is the desired oil. Um, so this was, um, these were the fields that fueled the, the Russian Empire during, uh, d during its last 80 years, and it had been left for dead. So this was a dead oil field. So this is, to me, some images of the end of oil. So these are all, this is the, the great oil fields, again, of, of Baku. Uh, interestingly enough, when I got here, they were at, at, at $70 a barrel, which is when I was here, it was 70 bucks a barrel. Uh, there was still enough to pump, so they started reigniting re a lot of these wells because even at low levels, they were at that price point, they could make them profitable. And I can imagine that this, this thing has been totally resurrected by now because of the price of oil at over 100. Um, refineries, that going further down the process now, the material's been gathered, the, the oil's been gathered. Um, and if we look at any material in the world in terms of weight, if you look at sand used for buildings, or if you look at stone, or if you look at copper ore, iron ore, any of those, the heaviest amount, the most amount of material, the heaviest amount of material that we move on the planet is oil. Um, so refineries all around the world, uh, you know, taking that material, converting it into fuels, plastics, uh, fertilizers, all of those things. You know, again, these are what those places that we made 
look like? This is in uh, Texas City, the largest refinery row in, in the world, I think, um, in terms of outside of Houston. Shot from a helicopter. All the tanks where the oil is being held. This is at a refinery where different oils come in. So if you read the labels, you can see that different types of crude are coming in. You've got West Texas crude that can come in. You can get stuff from East Coast Canada. You can get stuff, uh, um, you know, whatever you need. If you need more asphalt, you can go for sour crude. If you need more high lubricants or high, uh, high um, uh, octane fuels, you can get your oil. from. And so it's spot price and and the oil refinery opens and closes the taps based on the orders from the customers. Then I began to also think, well, what is the direct outcome of all of this fuel that it changed our cities, it changed our infrastructure? Uh, this is in Los Angeles, uh, the 110 and the I-5. I think this is the intersection, one of the biggest, busiest in the world. Um, and where the freeway was pretty much invented as well as probably the, su the suburb. Um, so. Again, you know, the development of all this technology, the, the fuel created uh, um, a world in which we needed, we transport ourselves at, high sp at fairly high speeds and, um, and, and mobility has been the key uh, driving force of the middle class. So we've actually been able to create an affluent middle class, I think directly as a result of, of, uh, uh, of the automobile being able to move us around and, um, and the economies that came out of that, uh, of the building of that infrastructure and the making of the car and the production and, and, the, and the money that came from, from uh, uh, oil proceeds have, have allowed us <coughs> the, uh, to have uh, a large affluent middle class. What fuels the highways is, is cars. This is a logistics yard for VW, again, showing what you know, uh, you know, what is feeding this great infrastructure. And uh, so this is outside of Houston. This is where these are all Volkswagens. They, they all appear white because when they come off the ships, they're coated in white plastic so that the paint doesn't get scratched. And once they deliver them to the uh, dealerships, they pull the white, uh, the white plastic off and, uh, and you have a unscratched car. And then again, the consequence of, of all these cars are vast um, collections of, of, of the, the waste of the car. This is, um, well, this is just outside of San Francisco, shot in 99, I think, um, <clears throat> around Modesto. Uh, it's uh, um, Wesley, I don't know who knows, Wesley's got a, a small gas station, but it's just in behind. Tire pile. Uh, uh, was, uh, was discovered by me through reading a book uh, by John McPhee uh, called Duty of Care. It was an essay, and his description in the first paragraph was so compelling, I said, I have to go photograph that place, and, and this is one of the images I made from that place. And um, three months after I photographed it, uh, it was hit by lightning and caught fire, so you may have heard of the, it was, the flames were about, they figured there were, at its peak, there were 40 million tires, and then the, uh, the, the uh, California Environmental Protection Agency didn't like that many tires in one place, and they said, we've got to figure out something. So they did a pilot project where they 
we're burning the tires and uh, uh, creating enough electricity for 14,000 homes. And they had reduced the pile. When I got there, the pile had been reduced from what they figured as 40 million down to about 20 million. And so I was shooting it at its 20 million scale. And then, um, and then three months after I photographed, it got hit by lightning and it all caught fire and the project was over. Um, the other types of uh, expressions that I feel are direct result of, of, of um, not only the protection of our interests, once, once we built a big middle class, we needed a, a way to protect it, and particularly the um, United States of America. This is in, in um, <clears throat> just outside of um, Tucson, Arizona, a, a, an area called AMARC, where they have over 4,000 uh, military jets uh, that are either mothballed in preparation for uh, active duty, uh, you know, so they have everything from the ready in one week, two week, three week, ten week, three month, half a year, and some just for parts, and some that are just decommissioned. These are totally decommissioned uh, transport planes for the military that would all be re will all be going into recycling. But again, it's that. Um, incredible infrastructure and the tools that we've invented to not only s protect our interests uh, and to protect ourselves from, from aggression um, that, that uh, uh, technology and the Industrial Revolution has brought this type of expression forward. <clears throat> these are fighter jets. Again, these are all decommissioned in the same yards. I went to, um, to photograph the suburb. Uh, I thought the fastest growing suburb in North America right now is uh, Las Vegas. So I, I, I did a flyover of Las Vegas last year to, to, to take a look at how the suburb is, is, is expanding. And I, I understand it's expanding largely because uh, in, uh, Nevada has a very small property tax and it's still very cheap to, and, and personal tax, and still very cheap to buy a home. So a lot of people might sell a home either here or in, in LA and sell, buy something for half the price and bank the rest and, um, and live very inexpensively. Uh, Lake Mead and, and the Hoover Dam. Again, what was interesting to me about this picture was the, the white rim uh, on the edge of the lake in that <coughs> It's beginning to tell a story. I think the lake meat is is going down at about six inches a week. It's at its lowest point ever. Um, and uh, if it continues at its current rate, the dam is going to stop being efficient very soon. And if anything should happen to that lake, the whole idea of Las Vegas is just a dream. Um, <clears throat> um, this is uh, shipbreaking in Bangladesh. I do a jump. Some, this is again directly a relationship to the Industrial Revolution. To me, this is where first world ships go to die in a third world country under very primitive conditions. Uh, so it is almost like stepping back and looking at the world through Dickens' eyes in our current contemporary world. And, uh, and the scenes that it created were so surreal that they seem as if they are from another world. And uh, I felt that that was somehow, and it showed the figures in the center, 
you know, who, who were, you know, who were the, the, the players within this theater of, 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 of the insane, um, where they're taking down oil tankers and ships, you know, uh, with nothing more than a cutting torch and bare feet and not even cutting goggles. Uh, they're just cutting these ships down and, and no cranes in sight. And uh, they're using as, uh, as a way to bring all the parts up. These are all little winch huts up there, all built from salvaged parts of a ship. And that's really uh, the only highest piece of technology that they have. But everything, the whole process, is driven by parts they can find from ships. Yeah. So then uh, one of the largest engineering projects on the planet, the Three Gorges Dam, I did a project on that. And I thought that would be important to include um, <clears throat> this image as well. It's not only the representative of, of China kind of coming of, a t coming of age after a, what we would call a 200-year kind of hiatus of, of being fairly powerful and significant, and then receding for a couple hundred years and now coming back. And China even refers to this dam as the uh, second Great Wall of China. And uh, so to, to again uh, represent it in the gallery, I thought would be an interesting thing to show the scale in which, um, uh, again, man was 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 operating, but but this but this dam bigger than 50%, and probably I would guess, I suspect this will be the biggest dam ever built. I don't think uh, something this big will ever be attempted again. Even when this one was built, <clears throat> they said that um, there was able they were able to detect a wobble uh, on the planet when uh, when they filled the reservoir. Um, and um, each one of these turbines is 700 megawatts, and uh, nuclear, a nuclear reactor is about 1,000 megawatts, so each one of these is almost a nuclear reactor in terms of power output, and they have 32 of these uh, turbines. Um, so it is a massive, massive project. And if you ever get to see the print itself, you can see small figures all throughout this um, working way like ants in a massive uh, ant farm. Um, <clears throat> again, where all of our um, products coming from, this is a big running shoe factory. Uh, the 90, uh, what is it? Um, the, the total uh, um, workforce for the Yuyang uh, shoe factory was uh, 250,000. This particular compound had 45,000 workers and this is 20,000 of them going to dinner. Um, so <clears throat> that's uh, quite something. Um, uh, again, China, coal, key, a, key, uh, a, a key material and a key energy source for, for China. And again, one of the things I think, you know, if we look at all the things that are happening out there, to me, coal is the, the scariest of them all in terms of, you know, there's a, a, a um, they say about a thousand megawatt dirty coal burning uh, power station being built per week in China. Um, and they're still being built all over the place in North America. And, uh, and each one of those dirty coal burning thousand megawatt plants is going to be there for 40 years, spewing the worst that we can imagine out into the air. So um, I think coal is the, uh, the real dirty secret out there in terms of uh, how, we're, you know, if we're going to stem 
global warming and the CO2 uh, accumulation in the atmosphere, we're going to have to stare this one in the eye. Um, again, in China, I, I've always kind of liked this picture in that um, this woman is almost 100 years old. She's been through four great changes in China, from the dynasty to the republic, from the republic to the communist, and from the communist to the uh, what I call the authoritarian capitalist system of today. Um, <clears throat> and here she is on her stoop with uh, e-waste as uh, industry on her front porch. And this is, um, again, e-waste where they're taking all the chips and, uh, and removing moving the chips and recycling all the precious metals off the chips. And then they're grinding these circuit boards and taking all the last metals off of that. And, uh, and then um, and that's the end process, end line of, of, uh, of, of computers and computer boards in China. So, 50% of all our computers that are recycled are recycled in China. This gives you a bit of a snapshot. Not that I think video is going to be in, uh, in, in, in the 10,000 year gallery, but it's a, an interesting. Can we get some sound on that. Yeah, so she does 400 of those a day. And that's why we can't compete with that anymore. Uh, because they're not using robotics, they're using this massive workforce, and, um, and they're highly motivated because they think in, in China there's a, a mobile community of about 100 million that are looking to find work in, in, from the rural into the urban centers. So the pressure on these workers to uh, to, to output every day is, is severe because there's so many workers looking to take their job. <clears throat> uh, this is uh, the, the biggest um, mobile phone company producing phones in China, Bird Mobile. This is a lunchroom of uh, the largest um, garment factory, uh, Young Or, in, in, uh, in China. The biggest chicken packing plant I could find in China which produced, uh, they, they uh, dressed out and produced, uh, processed 100 million chickens um, a year. Which sounds like a lot, but I actually f asked the question, well, how many live fowl would there be in China every given day of the year? Um, and on a daily basis, they estimate between 5.5 and 6 billion fowl uh, are alive um, and in husbandry mode. Uh, in China, so the processing of 100 million is actually a fairly small. And I thought 100 million, if so, if a chicken feeds a family of four, then the, the yearly output of this whole plant uh, would be enough to feed a third of China for one meal, which uh, just gives you a bit of perspective. And this is, um, again, a large uh, factory, 22,000 people uh, producing coffee makers and irons for ironing. They did uh, 
22 million irons and 3 million coffee makers a year. This is the inside of the coffee making plant. If any of you have seen the, uh, the movie Manufactured Landscapes, there's an eight-minute opening shot, and it's basically a dolly shot from there all the way along there, show, you know, pointing into the aisles of this particular plant where they're making coffee makers. So um, <clears throat> it's, um, it's an opening shot that's gotten a lot of uh, acclaim in terms of how to take a still image and unpack it and, and uh, show through film what a still is trying to show in a singular combined image. But again, the size of a factory floor in, in, in the new, and that's what I found interesting about China and why I wanted to bring it into the idea as well of the gallery is that a lot of this is the invention from here, from the West. And what's happened is that it's been unbolted from the factory floor here, taken to China, amplified to, you know, to a factor of 10 because they're supplying back to the world and the population's been growing ever since, and, and that, that these manifestations are now apparent there, but their, their source is actually uh, of the assembly line, the production lines, the extrusion um, machines, all of that, the plastics, the materials, are all, I think, mostly Western invention. And then the cities of, of Asia that have grown up, Shanghai, <coughs> Hong Kong. What sound effects? And uh, again, the density of of of, uh, uh, of living, and then as a kind of concluding image, this kind of forest of uh, what I call the international style gone crazy. Um, I don't think Bauhaus the Bauhaus guys ever intended it to look like this. Um, actually, when they developed a high-rise for high-density living, there was supposed to be a park of, of uh, almost equal floor space for, for natural walks and to be able to enjoy the outdoors with uh, high-density living. They obviously cut out the second part of the equation on, on most of this. So that's the presentation. Uh, and so now I, I think we're going to do some Q&A. Formidable. It's going to be interesting to see what these images look like in a hundred years' time, a thousand years' time, and ten thousand years' time. Because the, what took you to these places was sort of evident in, in kind of the essay that you tell around each one of them. This is the largest something or other. This is the most uh, damaging something or other, it's the most extractive something or other. And the images by themselves are so big, they're so rich, they're so detailed, they're so real, that a person walks up to them and the first thing they're doing is, you know, they're going in close, oh, look at that little tiny person and what's going on, and the, they tell themselves a story of what's going on there without necessarily your valence on it, that this is a, a bad story. And you know, the Three Gorges Dam uh, is incredible. It's terrible, a couple million people moved, 
uh, you know, there's, what do you say, 32 dams uh, under construction now in China, all this kind of thing, each time a horrible uh, problem. But on the other hand, whoa! <laughs> and, you know, I have a feeling people will look at these things in future time, and it's like us looking at sailing ships. You know, the big, the, the tall ships we've got some coming in shortly. And, you know, it was uh, rum, buggery, and the lash for the guys who were on the, the vessels. Right. It was a floating prison on which, you know, on which you might get drowned. But we'd look at those things. Wow, how did they do that? It's incredible. So I have a feeling this kind of imagery, you're dead right, is exactly the sort of thing to launch through time. And my guess is that the same thing happened with the cave paintings, that you know, they had one set of things in mind. But then an important thing to remember about the cave paintings, and it's what your 10,000-year gallery will get at, is there was a first set of cave paintings but people kept going back into those caves, and they'd see the former images and go, yeah, well, and then sort of you know, either write right over it or do a reply or something like that. So their art was about art. They already knew that this was communication through time. So the characters who are curating and contributing to the 10,000-year gallery are gonna have this sense of, there's that early stuff and what was in their mind, but you know, I've got my own interpretation of it, and they're gonna be responding over centuries and millennia to the sequence of images and the sequence of interpretations. Does that sound right to you? Well, I, would, I would think that it's, it's um, as you accumulate, as these images accumulate, that there, there is kind of pressure because obviously, um, you know, of the very early ones, of the very, you know, the first ones in, it's, the, the, it's fairly open, it's an open text. You can, mm -hmm. you can kind of just lay down what you think. But once you lay marks down, then people re respond not only to the, 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 the task at hand, but the marks that have been laid. And so then their marks uh, have the added pressure of trying to either aspire to beat the marks that have been laid to match them or, or uh, you know, and what they're trying to not do is have something that would be considered inferior to what's already been put in play. And there are only, I guess, so many human stories, too, so some of the big, great stories get, you know, told very quickly. And that's why I thought that showing the gallery of the mundane uh, is interesting, too, because there are, like, shards. These are, like, what archaeologists tend to, their stock and trade of what they find when they do digs are little bits and pieces that are of daily life, uh, not these great gestures of, of, of human ambition. And so... I think there is, um, you know, all these things are, are part of the process of, of uh, bringing in other um, thinkers and, and curators to, mm -hmm. to consider what's there and consider what can be or what hasn't been told yet. There's a question from Michael M. Wave your hand. What is the history of the carbon image process you propose to use? How did it evolve? What need did it fill? You mentioned there's just three places doing it. Is that growing or dwindling? And uh, if all of this happens, will it help it grow? Well, I mean, the, 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 uh, I would say rather than get into the whole history, I mean, it was first discovered in the mid-1800s. Um, and uh, there were some French, uh, which the names avoid me, I can't quite get, but um, if you go to the actual Art and Soul website, the one that, uh, and just go Art and Soul Carbon Printing, Carbon Transfer Printing, it's got a beautiful synopsis of the history there. That's where I was showing you the images as well. So that, that would certainly help 
fill in any kind of gaps as to the history. It is very, um, but it is an early process, and, um, and it is a dwindling. Uh, there's very, very few who are willing to commit the kind of time and energy to, to produce these things today. So it is a dying um, artisan craft, and, um, and it would be wonderful, I think, to keep it alive at least until technology can merge and find a replacement for it. Because ultimately, I think um, these materials will be get, get harder and harder. Uh, like even the gelatin, they had to, this gelatin here, the purity of this gelatin, and it's this particular gelatin, it's not any other gelatin. There's one factory that's making this gelatin, and they make it special order for the, the two guys, the three guys have, have pulled together and they get cases of it made because nobody else needs this purity. And if you don't have this purity, you can get yellowing, you can get problems in, and, and imperfections in the coatings, therefore causing dimples in the, um, in the actual print. So these are, there, there's, a, there's a, this handful of guys right now that are keeping it alive um, and um, will do so, I guess, as long as, but, but they're all, like I've looked at every one of them, they're all over 50, so I don't see any young a a apprentices around e either. So, so there is this kind of moment that we're at where this could very well, uh, as a process, uh, disappear um, if um, you know, certain people don't um, try to, or find a reason to keep it alive. Well, this particular print here, if you put that out in the sun, not in you know, humidity controlled, temperature controlled storage, all this. So put it out in the sun like a car. How long would it last? Um, I think it would do as well as a car, you know, which would be like you know, probably 30, 40 years before you start seeing fading. Wow. You know, or significant fading. You said some guy did an accelerated uh, yeah, light Henry test. Yeah, Henry Wilhelm did a, a test where um, if you look, they did a test for the average viewing wall of a print starting in the northern hemisphere and all the way down to the equator, and they averaged what a living room wall would, would, would get as a, a lux mm -hmm. value, and it was somewhere average around 125 lux value. Um, Henry Wilhelm does his tests at 450 lux, mm -hmm. which is about four times that, that intensity, 12 hours a day. So he does it for 12 hours a day, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, hmm. 365 days a year. He did that level testing for 500 years on this print mm -hmm. and figured the shift was less than 1%. Right. So it's about as solid as you're gonna get. Yeah, I think this is something you know, that spread the word, um, collectors, museums, should want this quality of archival material. And if they request it and pay for it, it's not that much more expensive than regular good prints. Uh, it sounds like we could keep this process going and getting better over time. Now, I think a lot of people were fascinated by the uh, mundane gallery. Mm -hmm. And it, it was actually smart to draw something from the 1950s or 60s that we already feel sort of archival about. But one of the questioners says, wouldn't it be interesting to you know, really collect stuff randomly, which is actually the sort of stuff that you do find in archaeological digs and so on. So do you know, send out a, 
a random trawl on the net for images and bring those things back and then uh, you know, give them this treatment. And so, uh, you know, of all the stuff that's on in a particular minute on Flickr, you know, one umpteenth of that becomes the, right. the record of this time. And maybe you do another one in 10 years and compare and contrast. It wouldn't be Flickr then, it'll be something else. But is that a way to approach mundane? Oh, I, I think so. I, I think because ultimately what, what we actually find interesting, and, and I think, you know, we're caught in a current, uh, you know, of, of um, you know, intense information, things flying by us at incredible speeds, trying to keep up to it in our individual lives. So it's very hard to kind of pull out of that current and to think, well, what would be interesting, <clears throat> you know, as a, a shard to leave behind? Mm -hmm. you know, what, and what speaks about our value system? Because I think that value system is probably one of the most interesting things to leave a record of. Mm. You know, what was it that we aspired to? What was it that we desired? What was it that, that um, you know, yeah, What do we sneer at, like graffiti? Yeah. Or, or, or you know, people look at old magazines. They're not so interested in the articles or the illustrations. What they really study is the ads, you know, which is, you know, at the time we're going right by those if we can. And right. yet, they're what's paying for the system, and they're also what's most fascinating later. Why is that? I think because we're always interested in the fact that, as human beings, there's something enduring about us that that we're always interested in. You know, in the similar things. Like there was. Um, I remember going into the Orkneys once, and we went to uh, uh, an old, um, um, it was a, a, a mound, and it was a Viking graveyard. And there was graffiti in it, and then somebody just deciphered it all. And it was mostly gossip, you know, like, you know, who was a, the, the girl to chase at the time, and mm -hmm. all this kind of, And so they interpreted it all, and then everybody was, like, fascinated with the fact that that, that, you know, the, the, their mind, you know, the guy's minds were in the exact same spot, you know, you know 3,000 years ago, you know, and so, so I think that, you know, whenever we can see something that crosses millennia that says we haven't really changed that much as a, as a kind of a, a human animal, that we're still interested in similar things, that we still have that kind of day-to-day -day life that we have to service, and we do it differently, but it's still servicing our day-to-day -day lives. You know? yeah, it, it, all of the cave paintings and the glyphs and the stuff they were drawing in all the caves, there's always lots and lots of vaginas. And uh, you know, big What's ladies, important yeah, to them? Yeah, it's clearly, <laughs> so clearly uh, pornography will be part of the record. Well, I showed some pornography from Pompeii, and that's considered one of the great highlights yeah. of Pompeii, to go see where the brothels were. You there know. you are. Nothing changed. Gwen Roberts has a question. Uh, how has your Ted wish unfolded? Which one? I don't know. Well, I was in the three wish. Oh, category. that was right. Okay, so. Uh, I was the one that convinced him to go to one because three was like inheriting three big jobs. Tell the story. Um, well, they're all in different states. This was 2004, right? Well, it's a 2005 Ted, Five. but I, I, always, mm -hmm. I heard about it in 2004. And there was a bunch of money involved. $100,000, three yes. wishes. Uh huh. Um, the so idea of the Ted prizes, then it was three wishes, a bunch of money, and a pretty rich and capable audience at the Ted conference in Monterey. And the idea was to harness all of that talent and interest to help out the, uh, the winner make his wish happen. Yeah, and I think um, I think what's interesting is I, I kind of surprised Chris Anderson, who's the uh, 
Well, he was the, 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 uh, the um, show curator and owns the show as well, TED, the TED conference. <clears throat> and, uh, um, and I think what he expected, he even told me he expected that as an artist, I would um, somehow be able to be interested in taking my work and using that audience to help disseminate that work into the world. And um, he was surprised when I told him that that's not what I wanted to do, you know, that ultimately, uh, as a fine artist, I had felt that my work was already gaining traction out there. And, you know, when somebody says to you, you know, go out there and make three, three big wishes that can change the world, think big, um, and then to then direct all of that or direct them at me and my work to make my work popular, I thought there's something, you know, a little uh, self-serving in that whole approach. So I, I converted my thinking into trying to say, well, what's, you know, if we're going to change the world, number one, I thought, well, if it's that easy to change the world, why haven't we done it if $100,000 and three wishes can do it? But, but, it, uh, um, but it still, it was a chance to kind of begin to grapple with, um, uh, you know, what was uh, a possibility. So the three things that uh, I ended up thinking about, one was how do we begin to disseminate information and, um, and trying to find something that was happening at the time that, that made sense. And so uh, one of the wishes was to take a, a site called World Changing. Some of you may have heard of it, worldchanging.com. They produced a book called uh, uh, World Changing the User's Guide to the 21st Century, which we was an Abrams got book. Them out in the yeah, so that was, again, part of the outcome of, of that, to get that going. Um, and I think for a while it worked pretty well and uh, had a, a bit of a flare out and it's now starting to kind of come back again uh, slowly and maybe in, in a more sane and, and uh, careful uh, approach. Uh, but I think it, uh, on the outset, it did do a many things to start bringing the conversation. What I liked about that is it was an open concept where people could post what was working out there. It wasn't a bitch session, but it was what can we do to create a more sustainable world here, are the good ideas and models for that. For, the, for, for, for a sustainable world, so, so that was one. The other thing I thought is, is bringing, and all, everything had to do with raising consciousness. The other one was to, how do we get the kids to start thinking sustainably? And I started with the idea of a, a thing called In My World, having kids teach them about sustainable thinking in a fun and, and easygoing way. We finally got DWGBH in Boston to jump on it, and we got some funders from the TED, the buyers, jumped into it, um, and created, um, a site called Meet the Greens, and it's like a family greens, and the kids are actually far more uh, environmentally astute and, and how to, how to uh, function in, in, in saving water, recycling, and all that than the parents are, and so it's this constant pushback from the kids to the parents about building a more sustainable world in a fun way. Uh, so that's currently evol evolving and developing as a site and growing as a site. <clears throat> and WGBH, if you don't know it, is one of the larger producers of uh, public broadcasting in, in, in the United States. And it's now coming up through a feed through TV Ontario as well as so it's coming up into Canada as well. Um, and of course the web is international. <clears throat> and the third one was to do an IMAX film, but it never ended up being an IMAX film. Manufactured landscapes ended up getting a bit of the updraft of wanting to do a film based on my work so I, so I did get a lot of support around it when it came to, to producing the film and I still think that one day I'd like to still produce a, a film based on the themes that I've done except doing it in a large format um, uh, version 
I, I suspect by the time I do get to that stage, there may be a digital solution to shooting on that, that, that high resolution um, uh, and, and projecting it large uh, and showing our world filmically <coughs> and what I'm doing as, as a set of stills. So, so that's still in progress. Keep going. Well, I have just two more questions I should mention. Um, there are signed copies of Ed's Corey's book in the lobby, which I recommend to you. And if you go over to the reception, a book that uh, Long Now sells called The World Without Us. The World Without Us is in written journalistic form the sort of thing about infrastructure that Ed Bertinsky has been doing with photographs. It's basically thinking through, if people suddenly weren't here one day, what would be the changes over time uh, to everything, to buildings, to infrastructure, to all these things. And it's a wonderfully detailed and well-researched travelogue, basically, to all the places in the world that show how things would proceed. So it's got the infrastructural level that you do. Two questions. One is, you're now using more video. YouTube is huge and getting huger. You know, there's Flickr and there's YouTube. Well, you've, you've taken care of archival Flickr. Your next task. <laughs> is to figure out archival video. You know, how can you do some kind of moving images with sound that is basically uh, platform-free enough or platform set in stone enough so that that can be seen over time? Well, I think the problem even gets bigger than that <clears throat> in that the assumption that, you know, even a thousand years from now that the sources of energy are going to be anything close to what we have now in terms of being able to feed this equipment to be able to replay the things. The thing is that it's so, I mean, the, the replay of a print like that is you open your eyes and you put some light on it. That's a pretty straightforward replay. And the minute you get any media, any player, and the source of power to mesh up with all of that. So, I mean, I can't imagine a thousand, even 500 years from now, that the source of power will look anything like, uh, mm -hmm. this, you know, 120 volt, 60 cycles. You know that it might be a whole other DC type uh, thing. That this thing that even if you kept the player dry and there, you know, waiting for power to play back the thing that you want, or even a computer that can play it back. The fact that the stuff that will be around that can actually, you know, respond to it may be a bigger question. So. The whole idea of the more technologically uh, sophisticated it is, the, mm. I think the, the, the more difficult it is to have a deep future. You know, that, that, that uh, um, there's a danger of uh, either file formats or technology or power sources not meshing, and that you have the intelligence or the skill or the will to go back and reverse engineer it and to find out what it needed from back then to, 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 to bring it up on screen, which may be obviously very simple enough to do if, if the equipment's there, if all the circuitry and all the boards <laughs> and all the stuff hasn't deteriorated to the point where it won't play in, in, in several thousand years. Which you is stated the problem very well. <laughs> and the solution obviously remains to be found, if any. Uh, one question I got it from a couple people, just a quick one. Can this carbon print uh, process, transfer process, be used on, say, uh, the walls of the chamber. Uh, if there are some images that you know people just absolutely want to have there, and we can, it's very fine-grained limestone. It's almost marble, so we can polish it as fine as you want. Could this stuff go absolutely. on? Absolutely, could go on. Yep, you can just uh, you use a gelatin. You mm -hmm. put a gelatin coating on it. Mm -hmm. 
the gelatin, it, it will work with, work with porcelain and limestone, anything like that. It'll, it'll uh, get large, long fingers into that, and then you, uh, you wet the surface, you roll the print on, you let it dry, mm -hmm. and then the release paper has less of a tension, less of a, st a stickiness than the thing mm. that, you're, that you're putting it against, then you pull the plastic back, you pull the, the, re the release paper off, and you now have a permanent print on a wall. Ooh, let's do that. Um, you're a working artist in full stride. Uh, what's coming next? Uh, another big exhibition in, uh, <clears throat> in Washington at the Corcoran, where I'm gonna be launching a lot of this sh stuff I showed you about um, kind of the landscape of oil. I also subtitle it The Oil Party. You know, like the whole uh, notion that we're at this kind of moment. You're showing it in Washington, so for your party, you'll get <laughs> so in there. The party's right? over there. Um, so it is very much uh, looking at um, that landscape, trying to find ways in which it's presented itself to me over time that I think is uh, relevant to put together into a book of images that kind of, be, and some essays that begin to encap encapsulate how our lives and our, and our urban landscape and our um, kind of middle class has been shaped by not only the Industrial Revolution but this incredible uh, source of energy that, <clears throat> that is here for both good and bad that has allowed us to achieve what we have. So to me, you know, we're at, you know and it, I had kind of this idea of oil in 1997, but I think by it's been about 09 when I'm showing. It'll be 12 years where I've worked on the project, so I'm trying to bring it to to um, a kind of a closure to try and somehow put it into a book. And and uh, as my Cory book has brought things together, the China book to do one on oil now. On the oil business, <clears throat> and they would describe what you've just uh, gone over as downstream. Uh, the, and once the oil is found, the things you do to get it out in the world. What's upstream for you? What do you want to shoot? Um. What have I been shooting? I, uh, I just photograph something very different than I normally do. I, <clears throat> I just went to CERN and photographed the particle accelerator. Great. Which was really exciting to, mm -hmm. to see. And uh, the kind that's, of- That's kind of an up project. That is a more up project. It's kind of, you know, why does anything exist question. Um, and, uh, but I've been, um, again, looking more into um, the, the new, um, processes that are out there, uh, um, video, I'm starting to look at, you know, capturing sound and video and, and using my themes a little bit more um, and trying to see how that might work into my work. And I'm pretty excited about some of the technology that's coming on stream in terms of the digital technology, uh, the new, like the Sony H3, you know, you could put on really good lenses and you're at a level of almost film quality at um, just above ten thousand dollar, you know, video camera. So the the ability, I think, to work at a, at the kind of quality level that I'd like to work at, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's often held me back. Is as soon as you jump into thirty five millimeter film, as you know, the you know you're into huge budgets, uh, um, a lot of limitations, you know, <clears throat> rentals, and so you have to be spending most of your time raising the funds to do these things. Whereas the new technology is going to allow artists like myself uh, with means, but not those kind of means, to mm -hmm. be able to continue to produce work uh, in my own um, way, at my own pace, uh, without a lot of pressure around me to be able to produce you know, projects that 
that I think can be very exciting and, um, and again, bridging those kinds of worlds that I tend to do photographically, but expanding the medium through which I do it, through to sound and motion. Fantastic. Thank you. All right.